Islam as is the norm, we have two topics for you today. The first is about Palestinian resistance and the collective narrative um, that Palestinian symbols provide um, around hope, resilience and determination. And the second topic, which we shall start at around uh, 8.15 a.m., uh, the first at 7.30 and the second uh, at 8.15. The second topic is about World Religion Day. Uh, and we will be talking to um, a few people belonging to some other religions and other communities um, um, and other creeds. So those are the two topics. Um, this is a live show. You can um, uh, you can call in and please do call in at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you, Imam Nabil Bhatti. How are you doing? By the grace of Allah, I'm doing well. How are you doing? How's your weekend been? My weekend has been great. Um, I hope your wrist uh, <laughs> is is better, and I hope uh, and I pray that it gets better soon. I hope, to, I hope so too. It's, it's, it's very is limiting me in very various departments I, I, as well, and work relates I, and family wise as well. <laughs> I can only imagine. Absolutely. So yeah, so you broke actually this uh, wrist while you were running in Ghana and you were um, uh, you were traveling for work to Ghana, right? Yes. So I went for a two week work period. Um, it was my I've been to Africa before, but it was my first time going to Ghana um, to see our studio, our first studio that was established there. So in overall perspective, we have over eight studios in Africa, so West and East Africa, um, which provide us, you know, various programs for our two channels, MT Africa 4 and 5, which the listeners can watch um, on Sky Channel. Um, so those programs, those those channels provide um, programs for our African viewers, viewers, mm. right? Um, MD and non-MD alike. Sure. Um, so one of our studios, our first studios that was established in Ghana, um, I went there to see it and, you know, see, um, um, uh, overlook and uh, see our staff members there and how they're working, sure. etc. Right. And, of course, B 
being the first studio, it's only right I go and visit them as well and sure. you know establish like a relationship and connection. So how long uh, ago was it established? Um, it was established in, I believe, it was in, I think it was 2003, after 2003. Right. Um, okay. It was at the time of the current caliph, Hazem Rizal Masroor Ahmed. Right. It was also the caliphate of the Prophet Messiah. Yeah, so it's established during his time and period. Um, and what are the other locations in Africa? So we have Tanzania, we have the Gambia, we have um, Tanzania, we have the Gambia, we have Mali, we have... Ivory Coast, we have, top of my head, I'm just trying to think, um, we have Mauritius as well, Ghana being one of them. Right. And I think I've missed one or two more. And there's, okay. of course, we have more projects in line, being it, uh, so that we have more. I think that we have in Kenya as well, right. and that's been established there. Okay. So there's a few more studios that are coming down the pipeline. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a pretty big presence. And uh, how are these channels um, accessed uh, over there in Africa? Over here, for example, we can go to Sky Channel Seven Three One, and we can we can access MTA. So, so over there, we have um, either 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 for MTA Ghana and MTA Gambia, they have a private channel that's running. Right. So for the uh, Africans to listen to, right, it's our own private channel. So we have our own transmission and everything that's been run by our own staff members, um, and. The the other ones is we have contract with other TV channels. Right. Well, our channel will be running as well, um, so the Africans can listen through that as well. Okay, and 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 how do they get? Do they do they have cable service there? They, they have cable they, service there. Or dish or yeah, or, or, they have okay. the. Yeah. I, I could imagine it's limited in a few, you know, various areas. Sure. Um But Jamaat does help out. Them, the Muslim community does help in the aspect of, you know, humanity first. They'll go there. They establish a dish in the mosque or additional local right. area where they can access at least the Friday sermons. Sure. Of Hazrat Mizam Ahmed. Right. Um, I meant more in terms of larger population. I mean, for the pop- no, but most most of them most of them will have access to a dish right. satellite. Right. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So, uh, so we were eight studios, and uh, and you mentioned that we have two channels uh, dedicated to to Africa. How many channels in total do we have in MTA? Uh, we have eight. Okay, so MTA uh, for those uh, who don't know is is the Muslim Television Emir. There, that's the uh, that's the television station. It's a twenty four hour uh, television station um, uh, um, uh, of the Emir Muslim community. And and you're saying there are eight channels. Yes. Uh, so one, of course, we um, is, is for um, uh, is the one that we get here. Is that MTA World that we get here uh, in, in uh, the UK? Uh, uh, yes, yes, that's that's right. Um, so every channel is dedicated to one part of right. you know, um, uh, I would say country or region. I would say sure. Um, so we have MTA Europe, MTA uh, USA. We have Indonesia. Um, on top, of, I can't remember on top of my head. But then then is MTA Africa Form Five, which right. is uh, which assists uh, the. Um, uh, the continent of Africa, right. and then we have, I think we have one more, which I can't remember in that case. Right. But it's it's situated in a sense that um, the channels would provide those programs suitable for those countries. Mm. Mm. So, because some programs won't be suitable for every country, right? Language limitations, or you know, sure. the need of what the African or the viewers that want to see. Yeah, localized content. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So, mm. MTA Four in Africa will just focus on. Um, you know, African countries and what they need at the time, and um, so that's that's what our studios provide. Right. So these eight studios then get together and provide the content for those two channels yes. in in, yes. in Africa. Yes. Right. And those are twenty four seven channels yes, as yes. well. Yes. Yes. Of course. Right. Okay. And um, uh, what sort of languages do we? Uh, we have, do we um, have, of course, English is the main main language. Right. 
Then we have um, we have uh, French language as well because okay. there are African countries which um, speak the French language. Mm-hmm. Then we have their local language, Twi, Hausa. We have Swahili, um, and then we have um, I think these are the five six languages mainly. Um, so the main focus would be the English language, of right. course, and then we have two three series um, per country or whatever the local languages, so that the African viewership can view those programs in their local languages or at their ease. Um, so that's how the actual the structure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. All right. Uh, and you were there for two weeks. Yes, uh, I was. Yeah. Right. Okay. And you broke great, great weather. <laughs> <laughs> and you broke your wrist yes, on the yes, last couple of days. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Well, all the best with the with the recovery there. Yes. And um, yeah, let's now go um, straight on to the news, uh, the news headlines. That is. Um, so lots. Um, happening in the um, in the newspapers this morning. A number of front pages uh, report that the Duchess of York's announcement that she has been diagnosed with a malignant uh, melanoma. The Daily Express carries the statement from Sarah Ferguson's spokesman that she was in good spirits after the diagnosis. Uh, it took place following the removal of a cancerous mole during the treatment or for breast cancer. The Sun says the Duchess of York faces an anxious wait um, if the disease actually has spread. It adds that it is the third royal health blow this week following news of the Princess of Wales having abdominal surgery and the king will undergo treatment for a benign prostate condition. The Daily Mirror reports the Duchess of York's announcement under the headline Fergie Skin Cancer Shock. However, for its lead story, the mirror carries a plea to young people from England football captain Harry Kane that they see, they should seek help if they are struggling with their mental health. The player has joined a project that helps youngsters deal with the issue and has recorded a video that will be shown in schools, says the paper. Many papers also carry the news of Storm Isha, which has started to hit the UK. Um, uh, Metro joined several front pages in, car- in, in carrying the photograph of large waves off the south coast, noting the whole country's under weather alerts from the fish-outs conditions. The Daily Telegraph reports the government's recommendations that regulator Ofcom should gain enforcement action over BBC News website articles it does not believe meet relevant broadcast standards. BBC faces tougher scrutiny over bias, reads the paper's headlines. The Daily, Mail, the Daily Mail reports analysis from the British Heart Foundation that suggests early deaths from heart disease in England have hit their highest level in more than a decade. Experts say the NHS is suffering its worst heart care crisis in living memory, according to the paper. The Guardian says modern slavery in the social care sector is surging after ministers relaxed immigration rules to fill thousands of vacancies. Its lead story cites unpublished figures from an anti-slavery charity that shows at least 800 people working in care homes or residences were recorded as potential victims in 2023. In um, uh, in the Times, uh, Rishi Sunak's expansion of free childcare in England uh, being, je- being in jeopardy um, uh, is the headline. The paper reports a delay to the planned April start could be potentially damaging for the Tories ahead of the general election. A response from the Department of Education included in the story refers to a minority of parents being impacted. And finally, the Financial Times says the world's most successful hedge funds made their biggest profits in more than a decade last year as bets on stock market paid off 
when share prices surged. The Financial Times reports research showing the top 20 fund managers made profits for investors to the tune of $67 billion or £53 billion, up from the previous record of $65 billion in 2021. So those are the headlines appearing in the newspapers um, this morning. A reminder of the two topics that we shall be talking about. So the first topic is about um, about Palestinian symbols and which, which form a collective narrative of hope, resilience, and determination um, around the resistance movement in Palestine at the moment. And then, um, secondly, is um, uh, the second topic, which we shall start at eight uh, thirty is about the World Religion Day, the first topic. We shall start at 7.30 a.m. Right. Um, any news um, that caught your eye this morning, Imam Mati? The only news that I can see is just Arsenal just dropping points. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I've, be uh, yeah, I, I, that, I've, been, I've been missing you, actually, the last uh, <laughs> few weeks. I've been, again, I wanted to talk about Arsenal. Yeah, so. Look, looks like Imam uh, Manan Saab hasn't mentioned anything to you. No, he hasn't. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, you've, been, you've been saving this for me. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, uh, we 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 dropped points over the before Christmas. Yeah, and not not a very good season. Uh, okay. No, hey, it's hey, not just, a very good another season, shall I say? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I wasn't in the sense if we maintained our record, we could have kept top of the table. But yeah, it so does, what's it, going on in your opinion? What's wrong? <laughs> I think we don't have uh, strikers that can convert goals. Right. We have. You know, every team has a striker who can... Score. No, it's not about scoring. Is they turn the game by themselves. Mm. They don't need the team to do it for them. Mm. So with us, is that our strikers need that push from the team to do something. And even if they don't, even if they are pushing, they won't convert those goals. So they need the passes to be constructed. Constructive. And be, and, and, it's not and, even and, about and, passes, just yeah. that instinct just to hit the ball first time and score. Our, mm, strikers, exactly. our strikers don't have that. Um... And the rest of them do. City doesn't even need Haaland for some reason. Well, if they, if they can't score, Imam Bhatti, then obviously... Well, of course, then, then, then we, we, we can't. I we don't can't. think you'll be winning. <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. Um, so I think the transfer, I think, season, uh, even the, I think the, the transfer season's open right now. In right. January, so we need a... Hopefully, we do get a striker who can do that. Otherwise, we will never... And we're, I think we're five... Yeah, we're five points behind Liverpool right now, so... And they've won their game. City have a game in hand. Yeah, it's looking a bit difficult. Yeah, but um, not, yeah, absolutely not very uh, no, <laughs> not, not rosy picture. Yes, uh, yes. unfortunately, again for you. Yeah, yes. So bad times. Um, yeah. Um, well, my thoughts and prayers are with you <laughs> and all the Arsenal fans. We're, we're gonna need that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. In other news, um, in, in the Guardian uh, today talks about uh, new Brexit checks that pose existential threat to UK flower and uh, fruit growers. So according to um, this article in The Guardian, the UK's fruit and flower growers face an existential threat from new post-Brexit border checks that could damage business and affect next year's crops. The National, Farm, the National Farmers Union warned that changes to import rules in April, which will impose checks at the border for nearly all young plants coming into the country, could cause long delays and result in plants being damaged or destroyed. Martin Emmett, the NFU's chair, that is the National Farmers Union, um, uh, said there is concern that border control points can pose an, ex- an existential threat 
to horticultural businesses in the country. Um, UK growers are reliant on the EU for young plants that start life in the country, such as Netherlands, before being imported into the UK for planting. Most soft fruit plants, including strawberries and raspberries, are imported as young plants, while significant numbers of tomatoes, fruit trees and nursery plants also start life in European countries equipped with large greenhouses and better conditions. Under current rules, imported plants are held at nurseries and farms in controlled conditions before some are checked by the government inspectors with checks often prioritised based on risk. However, under new rules scheduled to come in on the 30th of April this year, the government intends to check 100% of consignments coming through the new border posts. This has led to widespread discontent among growers who have concerned that the ability of these border posts to handle this will actually hamper the volume of imports. They believe delays in conditions at the new posts could lead to crucial plant imports being damaged or destroyed and threaten crops for the coming year. The Guardian has spoken to bodies that represent fruit and flower growers, which have echoed the NFU's concern, including the Horticultural Trade Association, British Apple and Pears Association, the British Tomato Growers Association and British Berry Growers. Nick Marston, the chairman of the British Berry Growers, said the border checks could cause great concern for the UK strawberry industry, which is heavily reliant on EU young plant imports, having brought in about 100 million plants last year. He said he was very concerned about the government's ability to process all those incoming plants on a timely basis and the losses to growers that could ensure that could ensue as a result of delays, which could add up to hundreds of thousands of pounds. The HDA said it was yet to be reassured that the porter posts were ready and had serious concerns that they were planned for the spring, the peak season for the sector. The checks made up part of a new post-Brexit border regime known as Border Target Operating Model, which has already been delayed five times. This will require European importers to provide health certificates for medium, uh, medium and high-risk animal and plant products from January 31st, with physical inspections of these goods due to uh, start at the end of April. New, nearly all young plants are considered high risk. The government has said that the border strategy was to protect the UK against biosecurity threats and the new controls would use Brexit freedoms to simplify import controls on goods from across the globe. So um, that was something that um, uh, that I saw in, in The Guardian today. Uh, the lead story, of course, um, uh, today in um, uh, in a lot of newspapers is about Storm Isha. Uh, the police service of Northern Ireland said that the weather was putting significant pressure on the 999 system and urged people to report non-emergencies online over calling 101. Um, this was announced um, uh, this morning that between 3.30 p.m., uh, uh, this was announced yesterday that between 3.30 p.m. on Sunday, 21st January and 2 a.m. on Monday, 22nd January, officers dealt with over 1,300 calls from the public, approximately 600 of those related to the storm. There is also a continued risk of significant debris on the road networks as wind speeds remain high throughout Monday as well. A multi-agency response continues to deal with the aftermath and recovery from Storm Isha, and we thank the public for their continued patience and understanding 
the sailing of a Stena Fine ferry from Belfast to Brickenhead due to arrive at 6.30pm on Sunday was delayed until at least 7.30am on Monday. High winds have caused flight cancellations and diversions. One flight travelling from Sharm el-Sheikh to Glasgow Airport declared an emergency due to Storm Isha. A spokesperson for Glasgow Airport said the DUI flight was diverted to Manchester due to current weather conditions. The National Air Traffic Services told PA Media due to adverse weather conditions across the UK, temporary air traffic conditions restrictions are in place. Restrictions for this sort are only ever applied to maintain safety. Our teams are working closely with the airport and airlines to minimise disruption. Passengers should check the status of their flight with the, air, with the airline. Belfast Airport cancelled flights to and from airport and warned that disruptions could continue into Monday. The th- thousands of people have been left without power as uh, Storm Isha brought disruption to electricity across uh, the networks in UK and Ireland. ESB networks reported more than 170,000 properties in Ireland were without power, while electricity northwest said crews had been stood down due to the conditions with almost 8,000 homes losing power. The company had said expected restoration times had been pushed back to 5pm on Tuesday. Northern Ireland Electricity Network said hundreds of extra staff had been brought in and incident centres opened after about 45,000 customers had been left without power, many of them overnight. The amber warning has now been lifted and yellow warnings remain in place uh, across the UK until midday today. The Met Office uh, amber warning um, were lifted um, about one hour ago, but a yellow warning, um, as I said, is still in place until uh, midday today. And that means some damage to buildings, such as tiles blown from roofs, could happen, injuries and danger to life from flying debris, power cuts, also may occur with the potential to affect other services such as mobile phone coverage. Injuries and death and death to life, uh, sorry, injuries and danger to life could occur from large waves and breach um, materials on uh, the seafronts. Some roads and bridges may also close. Road, rail, air, and ferry services may also be affected with longer journey times and cancellations possible. Right, and with that, we will wrap up. Uh, this segment of uh, news um, and headlines appearing in the newspapers. We shall now take a very quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about Palestinian symbols um, around the collective narrative of hope, resilience and determination. Do stay tuned.
listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. People are asking, who is the gracious God? The gracious God is He who has created the sun and the moon for our benefit. The sun with which human life and the life of vegetation is associated. Through the attribute of Rahman, God grants without being asked can one say that the sun or the earth was created on account of one's deeds? Rahman is a being that grants beneficence of the kind that man does not have the capacity of giving. It is by virtue of being gracious that all creation receives God's universally prevalent beneficence. Prophets of God summon people to the gracious God for people's own good and not for any recompense. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, states, The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was the perfect manifestation of Rahman because his beneficence is incomparable. Being the perfect man, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had this quality in him more than anyone else, and an ordinary person too should aspire to the paradigm, deriving luminosity from the sun of 1400 years ago. In this age, the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, has further spread the light, the light of the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, is from that same gracious God. The quality of Rahmaniyat is pure favor and munificence and is not caused by any good act and is not the fruit or reward of anything. Despite humanity rejecting God, His Rahmaniyat remains overwhelming. If it were not for this divine quality, majority of humanity would have been destroyed because of its misdemeanors and sins. Despite rejecting God, people are asking, Who is the gracious God? Okay, welcome back 
to the breakfast show. In today's topic, we're going straight off the news. We're going into our first segment, um, which is the echoes of resistance. In this segment, we'll be looking at similar symbols that the Palestinians have held, and have the symbols that narrate uh, the essence of hope and resilience and determination within themselves. This uh, this story links to the Al, Je- Al Jazeera news. Um, so going right into it, into it. Um, so Al Jazeera on the twenty second, eleven twenty three, have showcased Palestinian symbols. Um, uh, one of them being a kefir, a scarf worn by the Palestinians, an olive branch, which shows the deep rooted love of the land that the Palestinians have, and a few other other you know symbols that we will be looking at this in this segment. So that's the gist of the story. Um, we will also be looking at similar. You know, uh, similar stances that the uh, that the religion of Islam has as well in terms of those symbols. And we have two guests in this topic today, um, and we will go straight into that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and let me introduce the first guest um, for this particular segment, who is Basma Duki. Basma is a Palestinian refugee living and working in Lebanon. She has a master's degree in development and emergency practice. Uh, at Oxford Brookes University and a scholarship from the University of Kent to study PhD in Migration Studies. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum Basma, can you speak up maybe? Uh, yes, now. Y- yes, slightly better. Thank you very much. Excellent. So uh, firstly, Basma, thank you very, very much. Really a pleasure uh, uh, to speak to you. <clears throat> Uh, if I can start by asking you, how long have you been living in the UK now? Uh, so far, two years, two years and two months. Coming to two years and two months. Okay, right. Uh, excellent. Um, your PhD focuses on refugee-led organizations. Yes. How does that differ from other organizations, uh, such as those led by uh, an, uh, an authoritarian level? Uh, actually, my PhD is focusing on the locally uh, led concept, which means uh, concept organizations or interventions made by populations like migrants and speakers. You're breaking up, Basma. Uh, I think the signal quality is uh, is not very good. Um, let us try to maybe reconnect uh, with you Um uh, I think, yeah, probably that would be best because uh, I was having trouble and I'm sure listeners were having trouble. So, yeah, so th- the topic um, we are discussing right now is, um, uh, is you know, some of the great Palestinian um, symbols that Palestinians use. And uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a show where we were talking about uh, really the resilience that uh, a lot of Palestinians are showing. And that re- resilience actually is, has become a, uh, such a source of inspiration for people around the world that they've started to actually explore uh, the Quran. Yeah, and and they've started to to read the Quran and um, and started to see. You know, you know, um, just connecting to what you're saying is that on a lot of social media, what I've realized is that some, you know, once the truth started uncovering regarding this Palestinian and Israel incident, and you know, um, the the, the stuff that's going on over the news, a lot of them have started reading the Quran just to find out what Islam actually says about this kind of stuff. And a lot of them have converted to being Muslim. Um, so, you know, this this is like a, a sign from Allah the Almighty as well, that, you know, um, wherever you hear, etc., 
that's not always the truth. You should be looking with your own eyes and actually researching analyzing what Islam teaches regarding these incidents. Um, yeah, so that's... Yeah, absolutely, that's 100%. And that's what... Um, so we interviewed somebody as well in uh, all the way across the Atlantic in America. And uh, she said that... Um, uh, you know, she was so inspired uh, by uh, by reading the Quran. She said that her her um, father had actually been posted in somewhere in the Middle East for work, and um, during that time he had uh, got a copy of the Quran from somewhere, mm. and that was just lying on the bookshelf uh, in our, in their home. Uh, so, uh, you know, when this happened, she just picked up the Quran. She said, "You know, let me let me read this," uh, and. Um, she said, I was just uh, absolutely amazed. Uh, and I then asked her, what is it that you, what really stood out for you uh, mm-hmm. in the Quran? She said, I mean, so many things. But really, the first thing which really strikes is that it is in first person. Yeah, It's not in third person. And uh, uh, it's, which is different from all the other um, mm-hmm. holy books uh, in which all Muslims have to believe uh, the Bible, um, uh, the Torah and and. Uh, the Psalms as well. So, um, so she said she was really struck by that. And then, you know, it, it just looks like you open the book and you you read it, and as if the God, as if God is talking to you. And uh, because it it's you know it's uh, it, it's very direct, right? Okay, let's um, uh, see if we can retry uh, with uh, Basma. Assalamu alaikum. Um, welcome back to the show. Can you can you hear us? Yes, alaikum salam. I can hear you all. Are Excellent. You so can yeah, so can we. Much better this time. Thank you very much. Apologies for that. Right. Okay. So, uh, right. So you were you were talking to us about um, the difference between refugee refugee led organizations and others. Yeah. So yeah. So my research is focusing on refugee led organizations, um, in particular or specific under the title of refugee leadership and humanitarian action. Focusing on locally led responses, uh, led, made, or uh, innovated or created by the affected population in a humanitarian action in conflict and in war, mainly refugees, migrants, asylum seekers. Um, and this is really, it's very different from any locally or uh, authorian or national uh, organizations that led by authorities or by countries. So it, these refugee-led organizations are mainly focusing on the efforts and the actions that um, are taken by the people who are directly impacted uh, from conflict or, displace, uh, or displacement and also uh, living in displacement refugee settings after leaving their countries or their home country and uh, having the, the inability to return home or to uh, to get benefits from the durable solution, the pre durable solutions like local integration, repatriation, or resettlement. So it's mainly about people action uh, and uh, people movement to mobilize themselves, to help themselves, and to support uh, their field of communities. Okay, thank you for that. Um, as a Palestinian refugee yourself, um, what these symbols that the segments connected to today, um, I'm pretty sure they do hold a very big, important part of your identity in life. Um, so how have these symbols helped Palestine preserve its history and identity? 
Okay, uh, for my for myself as a uh, third uh, generation of stateless Palestinian refugees who lived in a camp, and mm. unfortunately, who my whose my grandparents were expelled from Palestine in 1948 and were not able to return back so far for 75 years. Uh, like the key, uh, let's say, uh, like the key of our house. So yeah. I belong, uh, or my grandparents belong to. Um, uh, a village called Albasa, and still we have a box, a very old box uh, for my grandparents, which contains uh, our documents, the documents of uh, owning all the property of our house and also some of the agricultural land in our village. Also the key of my grandparents' father, uh, my, gra- my grandparents' house uh, in Albasa. And also, I remember uh, a very old map of Palestine, including the map of our village, Al-Basra. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I brought up seeing that, uh, that box. And also, every Friday, we do have a family, uh, a family gathering where my grandparents will bring this box and also explain about each item in this box, particularly the key, telling us that this is the key. Uh, and we inherit the key, by the way. Like, my okay. father inherited the key, and we inherit the key, and I will inherit to my children until we are able to return back to our uh, to our village. So the key uh, is for, the, uh, for our houses. And it's, uh, the importance of the key, of the map, uh, of Al-Aqsa Mosque, of a lot of symbols are uh, really symbols that keep us, particularly Palestinian refugees, the hope and the termin- that termination of our right to return, our right to return to our expel- uh, to our villages that are occupied in, in Palestine, and also to keep our uh, solidarity and also our uh, uh, our uh, determination to not only to dream of uh, uh, of freedom and also to get uh, freedom of oppression and to get freedom of occupation and to have or to belong to a place. So because we are stateless, that key helps us to regain that sense, uh, sense of belonging, that we belong to a place. We, be- we have identity. We are Palestinian. This village is our own. We have a house. We were having a house and we should return to that house or to that village. So that it helps us to regain the sense of freedom the sense of belonging, uh, the sense and the right, our human rights, right of return, and the right to belong to a place, and the right to have a homeland, which is our Palestine. And also to to keep our commitment to our grandparents, that we will not forget. We will not forget our homeland, and we will not forget our rights, including our right to return, and our right to, to, to live free, to live in a freedom, and to be free, and to live in full dignity. So the symbols are really important to show solidarity, to show commitment, and to show support to our grandparents, and to, to tell us every day we will not forget, and we will not let anybody uh, to left us behind or to left us forgotten. So that's why the symbols are important, and that's why the key of my grandparents' house was a core element in how I brought up and in in my collective consciousness about, and individual consciousness and knowledge and awareness about uh, my belonging and my roots and my values. Okay, thank you. Um, As part of these symbols um, last year, there was a very big, uh, I wouldn't say a very popular symbol amongst the social media users, the watermelon symbol. Um, How has this changed the global perspective um, and... How has this given attention to the conflict? Mm, 
I do believe that um, um, it really helped a lot of people uh, coming from different backgrounds and different cultures and don't, uh, who also not uh, who don't speak uh, one language or the Arabic language to understand more about to also, first of all to ask critical questions and to have that ability and that humility to to say that we need to understand what's behind the water the water melon and what's going on. So it really helped uh, to challenge the status quo and to challenge the, the uh, preventing and uh, the bans on uh, raising the Palestinian flag. Uh, not only in Palestine, it's, it's actually nothing new. It's, uh, it's returned back to the, to the 1961, uh, to the war on, uh, between Israel and Palestine and uh, some of the Arab, Arab countries where uh, the Palestinian flag was banned uh, before uh, uh, in in Palestine, so it actually uh, helped uh, people to be more creative to say that if we are prevented to express ourselves in our way, we have to create other ways that uh, will continue to show support, will continue to show solidarity, collective and individual solidarity with people who are under oppression, with people who are under apartheid system in Palestine, by creating other symbols that symbolize uh, the colors of the Palestinian flag. So it really helped a lot of people to ask questions, to try to, under to, try to seek to understand the situation and to be critical about uh, uh, the, the situation and what's happening, and also to meet people, to meet people from Palestine, to ask questions about the symbols, and to understand the importance of symbols uh, in, our, um, in our struggle and in our uh, yearning for liberation and for freedom, and also in our history, because symbols are, are a core element in our history and our present, and also in our future as Palestinians. And I do believe, uh, believe it's become a core element also in the global movement, in creating a global movement of uh, global solidarity with Palestine, with Palestinians, uh, and with every person and every community who are under oppression, uh, apartheid, facing injustice and the genocide. So it creates a lot of awareness, uh, help to build a collective and individual global solidarity and local solidarity. And the most important uh, thing for me as a Palestinian, help Palestinians in Gaza and in West Bank and I provide Jerusalem to understand that they are not alone. They should not be left behind. And people do care, do care for peace, do care for compassion, do care for love, and they are showing solidarity in different ways, in different ways and in different symbols to say that we stand with you, we support you, and you are not alone. So yes, it creates a global movement, increased the attention, and also helped creating a lot of discussions and difficult conversations about the history, the present, and also the future as well. Sure. Basma, you're studying um, at the University of Kent for your PhD at the moment. Um, uh, what sort of uh, support are you getting, um, or, or you, are you seeing around you at the moment? Do, are, are you getting any support um, from your fellow students uh, or from teachers? What's the general sentiment like at the university where you send, where you're studying? Um, actually, I am sick to my stomach, as as I mentioned, of the silence. 
and sometimes the complete the silence of uh, my university and the complicity of other universities uh, uh, of um, the involving genocide in Gaza, comparing to the to the to the responses and the support um, that other other crises in this world uh, received, and other people who have been impacted, particular students received. Uh, I uh, I depend on the support. Actually, let's say first of all, and frankly, from Allah. Uh, I am a I am a deep believer in that. So I believe in the support of Allah. I believe in the support of my fellows, uh, fellow community where I live, and my uh, very particular specific friends. And like the university offered uh, like these counseling services and the normal service, the normal services for people impacted by earthquake, violence, or conflict. But I don't feel myself. Uh, I really need that uh, counseling. I just, um, um, the more I speak up about what's happening, the more I mobilize myself, the more I go to, to participate and to raise awareness about what's happening, the more I, I feel I am supporting myself by not keeping silent and by doing my best to support my people in Gaza and uh, in Occupied Palestine. I do believe we do have a serious gap in uh, offering uh, active support and active solidarity. So it's not about uh, just counseling uh, in the universities or creating, I don't know, uh, asking you to go to meet a people or to speak with a people. It's about how they show active support and solidarity with uh, your uh, counterpart, like with academic, with Palestinian academics, with Palestinian universities that are just blew up now, and by Palestinian students who are uh, killed brutally. And we are not seeing this. I am not seeing this at my university. And a lot of Palestinian uh, academics are not seeing this. And this breaks our hearts because we don't need counseling. We need active support, active solidarity by speaking up against this, by asking a full academic boycott, by breaking ties with, uh, with, uh, with a regime that destroys universities and kill academics and students. This is how we see the, the, the needed support, the required, the required support for people who are living and still living under oppression and apartheid, I do believe. I don't know if I answered your question, but... Uh, no, you, you, you did very well. Tell me something, uh, Basma. Are you from the West Bank or Gaza? Actually, I am not, 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 uh, not, of the, uh, not, of, not from Gaza, not from West Bank. I, I am from a village called Al-Basta. Al-Basta, it's in the north of Palestine, on the borders between occupied Palestine and Lebanon. Okay. And actually, my village is occupied now, and we are, uh, we, I, I don't live in Palestine because of the occupation, unfortunately. Right, so, okay, so it's on, right on the border, but it's um, uh, it's occupied. Uh, so it, it, so this would be, um, uh, this would be the West Bank border then, right? The West Bank's border with the, uh, uh, with Lebanon. No, the West Bank is in the middle of Palestine. It's um, it's on the north of Lebanon. Uh, sorry, it's in the north of Palestine. Um, now, uh, if you, uh, if I can make it easy for you, now um, where the the bombing is happening in South Lebanon, I do belong to Al Jalil, to Al Jalil area. Okay, got you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay, right. Uh, okay, so yeah, so in, uh, next to the. Um, uh, pretty close to the Golan Heights and and, and that sort of uh, Syrian border uh, area towards the north. So um, uh, uh, tell me something then. Uh, um, do, do you have any family in uh, in Gaza or West Bank uh, at the moment? 
um, me personally, no, but I consider all the, uh, to be frank, mm. as a Palestinian, mm. I consider all the people in Gaza are my family and my people. Of course. But also, it's, I do have um, um, uh, tons of friends from Gaza who have lost, I have friends from Gaza, uh, some of these friends lost uh, completely all their family members. Mm. Some of them are not able now to reach their families. So I do have, I am connected very well to Gaza. Gaza is not for me a new now. It's more of a personal. I do have friends from Gaza. I do have uh, families of my friends also from Gaza. Yeah, And I consider all these people are my family because they are Palestinians, actually, and I am Palestinian. I forget about also my identity as Palestinian. I consider them as my family because mm. they are my human fellows. Of course, that goes without saying. Um, if you look at the um, uh, uh, social media in general, uh, there have been many demonstrations actually in central London as well. Uh, this. Uh, it does seem to, you know, at, at least um, uh, from the outside, it looks that this, the support on social media, at least, is a lot more this time around mm-hmm. than it was back in 2015 or back in 2013 um, mm-hmm. uh, as well. Do you see, do you, would you agree? Uh, yes, of course, I do believe that. There is uh, more awareness now uh, and, and more people are speaking out. Of course, I do believe as a, as a person actually uh, in the power of the people and in the collective power and the collective knowledge and the collective movement. So I can see this actually. I go every I go every week and now I go in every protest and I can see like as a Palestinian I always say I get the support that I need when I go to protest when I see these thousands and hundreds of thousands of people going out speaking up for Palestine, trying to raise awareness. It's trying to say that we it's not under our name. We are not supporting this. We are we are with you and we try to support you and to use all our, uh, our, our tools in order to stop this and to ask for a ceasefire. I actually, yes, social media. And this is for the first time, which I am very proud of. Unfortunately, we have to do this. It's hard to say this, but uh, because of the Palestinian, we should be uh, remain grateful for forever for the Palestinians in Gaza and for the people who are facing genocide, broadcasting us, the victims of genocide, broadcasting from Gaza live and sending all social media videos in order to raise awareness and to share what's happening on the ground. Uh, it was the first time where social, where, um, where people in Gaza were mobilized, empowered um, uh, to share stuff on social media with, in different languages, and the people were interacting, sharing, and sending videos, uh, speaking about Palestine, uh, trying to challenge the status quo of information and knowledge and history that we know. So yes, social media and uh, supported a lot Palestinian voices to reach places that they will never be uh, reaching uh, before, uh, to speak in other languages. And which is also important for me, to see younger generations and Generation Z and younger generations who are very active in social media watching these videos or or um, or um, or the news uh, and sharing them, going to protest, asking and uh, telling you that we are here we want to learn. 
we have learned the opposite of what we are seeing. We want to learn. We want to ask you, uh, you questions. We want to change what we have learned, and we want to mobilize other younger generations. So yes, social media was an important tool to raise awareness and to give that agency, agency and the agency to Palestinians in Gaza, and to shift the dehumanizing narrative for the first time about. Palestinians and about uh, occupied Palestine, not only Palestinians, about for every individual and for every community who are still living under uh, apartheid or oppressed um, systems. So it it, uh, it empowers everybody, actually, everybody who is with social media or against social media. I'm very proud that it gives for the first time or elevated, not gifts, elevated, amplified the voices of Palestinians from Gaza, uh, and also uh, amplified the voices and raised awareness among younger generations in the UK and worldwide. Uh, we should invest in that, and we should be creative how to use this tool uh, to, cre to create awareness against injustices, discrimination, oppression, not only in Palestine, everywhere, and how we use social media as a tool for collective solidarity and collective movement, global collective movement. Okay, in regards to the Israeli and Palestinian conflict, of course, um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the map of Palestine is the very heart of this um, uh, conflict. How do these both symbols influence global discussions? Um, uh, first of all, it helps people to ask to be critical, maybe, and to ask questions about why symbols are important in the Palestinian uh, blight uh, in general and also in other in other blights as well. And then it has, like, for example, if we want to say the keys. So it will help people to understand why Palestinians are still keeping the keys for their houses generation after generation um, uh, in order for them to keep their own uh, human rights, uh, which is the right to return. Uh, it also helps a lot of people to understand the current situation and the current um, lack of human rights and violation and um, killing and massacres that people are suffering by, for example, asking, like when we say al-Mosque, uh, um, when, uh, when we say al-Aqsa al al Mosque as a symbol. So people will understand why al-Aqsa al al Mosque is a very important to not only Palestinians or Muslims, to every to every human being, to every free human being. Why, for example, uh, can he, uh, the church in Bethlehem is important not only for Palestinians, Christian Palestinians or Palestinian Muslims, but for everybody. For example, when recently they bombed the churches and the mosques, so why mosques are important for Palestinians or for that com particular community under apartheid or oppression? So I do believe that they help people uh, first of all, to be uh, um, it talk to people who are different from from uh, from <clears throat> pe uh, who are diverse, which coming from different backgrounds and different cultures, speaking different language. So it might give one global language about uh, global uh, solidarity and uh, compassion. And second, it helps people to ask questions about why these uh, symbols are important to the plight, the Palestinian plight. 
and to the Palestinians uh, as well. And also it helps them to ask questions about the future, like how we uh, we bring that future, how we keep, for example, the human rights of Palestinians. Like when I use the key, when I when I hold my key in the protest and people asking me, why you still hope uh, carrying the key? It's because I want to return back to Palestine. So it's about future, my, mm-hmm. my own present and my own future. So okay. it helps people to understand, it helps us to raise awareness and to be not only creative, but to be meaningful and in including all the symbols uh, in our blood that were created because of our deposition, dispositions and exile. Okay, thank so you. Okay, thank you for the very interesting answer and insight. Um, I hope I hope your I hope your friends and families over there. I hope uh, may Allah help them in this time of need um, and help them ease their pain and uh, it's all trials and tribulations. And thank you for coming to the show, Basma. Thank you so much uh, and have a nice day. Thank you so much for your thank wishes. You. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So that was uh, Basma Duki, who is a Palestinian refugee living and working uh, <clears throat> in in Lebanon, and she has a master's degree in uh, development and emergency practice. Uh, from the Oxford Brookes University and she's currently on a scholarship from the University of Kent to do her PhD in migration studies and and she was uh, talking to us about uh, the importance of uh, not only the Palestinian symbols but um, uh, but all manner of um, uh, uh, difficulties that the Palestinian people are going through. I must add however that uh, the Israeli government continues to put um, uh, to contest the um, the charge of genocide, and this is a matter which is under um, uh, the International Court of Justice's um, uh, litigation at the International Court of Justice uh, and uh, is being deliberated upon. Right. Um, we are now coming up to the 8 o'clock news. Um, uh, a reminder of the topic that we, talk, we were discussing. So we are still talking about the Palestinian symbols and the importance of Palestinian symbols to form this collective narrative of uh, hope, resilience, um, and determination that we, uh, that everybody sees and so evident um, among uh, the Palestinian people. Um, we shall continue this discussion after the 8 o'clock news. And our second topic, which we shall start around 8.15 a.m., is about World Religion Day. Please do stay, uh, stay tuned. Please also feel free to call in and in fact do call in at 0208-687-7878 you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK we will be back after the 8 o'clock news and these messages a new station the Voice of Islam
listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you very much for staying tuned. We are talking this morning about Palestine and the echoes of resistance in Palestine and the important role that Palestinian symbols play around creating this collective narrative of hope, re- resilience and tremendous determination that we see from the Palestinian people. Before we went on to the break, um, uh, on to the news break, we were talking to Bas Maduki, who is a Palestinian refugee and is currently doing her PhD from the University of Kent. Uh, let's know, uh, now go straight to our second guest, who is Professor Dr. Makram Khouri Mahul, who is the founding director of the Cambridge Stud Center for Palestinian Studies. He's an internationally renowned, uh, renowned academic specializing in international relations and political communications. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm Good welcome morning. to The Breakfast Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, Dr. Makram, if I can start by asking you, uh, firstly, um, uh, what role do you think these Palestinian symbols are playing in the resistant movement? What is uh, fascinating, in fact, about symbols in general is the very fact that uh, how we use them and later how we interpret them and communicate them to the outside world. Uh, In the case of Palestine, we are not talking about words as in language. We are talking, in fact, about symbols that are inherently related to the land. The struggle is about the land uh, since more than uh, a century uh, and since the release of the uh, Balfour letter uh, from London to the Zionist organization on the 2nd of November 1917. And since this struggle is is about land and since Palestinians have always uh, wanting to keep their lands, they introduced to the world uh, several symbols. Um, The main one uh, is really the kefiyah or or kufiyah, which in fact is uh, one uh, square meter piece of cloth um, uh, from uh, cotton or linen. And it it has several colors. The color was made out of black and white. It's uh, a white uh, cotton uh, piece of cloth uh, with black marks. Now, the black marks uh, either resemble the uh, fishing net, um, which uh, relate to the uh, Palestinian coast, and in particular to Jaffa, uh, uh, Akka, Acre, and Haifa in particular, Um, and or it relates and reflects how the uh, parcelization of the lands, the plots of the lands uh, are divided. So uh, clearly the kafir is the main uh, symbol because it it is something you can wear and anybody in the world can relate to. Now even the kafir underwent uh, a process of evolution It's true that before the First World War, Palestinian farmers uh, used to wear it in order to protect their heads uh, from the sun or any 
uh, Sandy's tomb. But um, during the uh, rebellion between 1936 and 1939 against the British occupation mandate, many Palestinian fighters used to wear it in order to hide themselves. So, but then the population, in fact, decided to wear the kafiyah in general so that the British occupation forces will not exactly be able to identify the Palestinian fighters. So this was before the Nakba, obviously, before uh, the climax of the Nakba between 1947 and 1949. Later, after the Nakba, it took another turn, in particular in the 60s, and chiefly when the first Palestinian female freedom fighter um, in fact, uh, hijacked the TWA airplane. Her name is Leila Khaled. She's still alive. Uh, she was only young, and she wore the kafia. And from that moment onwards, it only took Yasser Arafat a few years to um, deliver his famous speech in 1974 at the UN, where he wore the kafia. This took us the first Palestinian Intifada in 1987 for several years where the youngsters wore the kafia and then the second Palestinian Intifada and up till, till now where we see that the kafia is an internationally renowned Palestinian resistance symbol. Okay, but we're talking about the history, of course, of these symbols and including histories you can talk about you know, um, the impact that the attack on the central archive building um, that has happened and that was targeted. What what impact has this, you know, what was the impact of this and how have the Palestinians and other communities helped preserve its history? Yeah, thank you for this question, which is uh, very important because it's at the heart of cultural Palestinian, cultural management. It's important to know here that this is not the first time that the Israeli occupation perpetrates such crimes. Uh, it takes us back again to the climax of the Nakba between 1947 and 1949, where the Israeli terrorist organizations, in fact, either burnt or confiscated uh, or just looted uh, in, in different manners. Uh, most of the cultural centers, it's uh, during that period that uh, the Palestinians faced their first catastrophe and where their cultural, national, commercial, political institutions collapsed by the uh, crimes of the Zionist organization. And if it's, this is not enough, then this was repeated in the first Palestinian Nakba between uh, sorry, first Palestinian Intifada between December 87 and uh, mid-1993, and again repeated in the year 2000 uh, Nakba, when the Israeli occupation forces as well destroyed schools and uh, computer labs, etc. Now, uh, I hope that this time the Palestinian institutions managed to uh, save uh, most of the material uh, online or have digitized it and somehow replicate it. But the true uh, uh, aim of the Zionist occupation 
is to obliterate the uh, cultural heritage of Palestinians uh, so that they minimize their attachment to the land and they take them back to the beginning where they can claim that they have no culture and they do not belong to this land. Therefore, this is ours, i.e. the land of the Zionist organization. Mm -hmm. And one last question to you would be, after you know facing continuous oppression for the last 75 years, what drives resilience into the hearts of Palestinians? Just a very quick and effective answer, please. Yeah, uh, I mean, in, in general, uh, what, what have been taking place uh, since the Nakba has been mainly ethnic cleansing uh, and uh, um, a mini genocide, genocide in installments. Today, what we see in Palestine in general and in the Gaza Strip is in fact a process of cleansocide, which is a combination of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Uh, this is the cleansocide. Now, what is really uh, uh, allowing the Palestinians to carry in, in their struggle, A, is the sense of loss, the trauma, the grief, the deprivation, which all are part and parcel of the national memory. But more than that, it's a just cause, uh, the sense of belonging, self-confidence, fearless approach, conviction, revolutionary spirit, and definitely with all uh, what supports them, like poetry and music of resistance. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mahul, for uh, joining us. Really a pleasure to speak to you. Um, all all the very best with uh, all the efforts, all the very best with the, the Cambridge Center for Palestinian Studies. Peace be with you. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you for joining us. Sir. So that was uh, Dr. Makram Huri Mahul, who is the founding director of the Cambridge Center for Palestinian Studies, and he was uh, sharing with us his uh, his thoughts and uh, views about uh, the Palestinian symbols. Um, Imam Bhatti, we talked earlier about um, uh, about hope, and we talked earlier about um, uh, the uh, the inspiration that uh, that not only Palestinians, but also many people around the world, many non-Muslims around the world, are getting from the Holy Quran itself. Yeah. Of course, um, you know, Islam teaches us perseverance, patience, mm. which God has given to the people that you will go through trials and tribulations in your lifetime. And the only way you can overcome and see them is to pray to him. Mm. Right. And as we can see, the Palestinians are and our prayers are with him, as God has mentioned in uh, chapter three, verse 174. Um, people have mustered against you. This is regarding uh, uh, patience and prayers um, regarding the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Where God Almighty states, "People have mustered against you, therefore fear them." But this is not only to increase their faith. He said, "Sufficient for us is Allah, and excellent guardian is He." So we know that the ultimate power for us to overcome those trials and tribulations is in is is in Allah the Almighty. Is in is in the God God Almighty. And as the, you know, the the founder, the the caliphate of the Amni Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, um, who's the fifth successor of the Prophet Messiah, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, 
Um, he, he has mentioned the only way in his recent Friday sermons, the only way we can overcome these trials and tribulations is prayer. That's the fundamental action that we have right now. Before writing to letters to countries and mm. governments, if you're not pray, if you're not praying in the first mm. place, those letters will have no effect at all. Sure, absolutely. Because yeah, at the end of the day, if you if you're trying to get your uh, your inspiration, your sucker from exactly. from God, yeah. then you know you you've got to bow uh, to Him. Exactly. That, that's that's the only way um, for this trial and tribulation to overcome. Yeah. Through prayer, we will see that it will open the eyes of these governments, etc. Mm. And mm. if we ourselves are not praying for our fellow be- uh, human beings, whether it be Christian, Muslim, Jews, mm. whoever it is, yeah. and then your further actions will have no effect. Absolutely. And, and yeah. that's really the best way to, to help our uh, yeah. brothers and sisters in, uh, in Palestine. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for that. And uh, with that, we will wrap up the first uh, segment and quickly move on to the second segment, which is about World Religion Day. So every year on the third Sunday in January, the world observes World Religion Day as a reminder of the importance of religious tolerance and mutual understanding. Communities of many religions can gather on this day to celebrate the distinctions and similarities brought about by the careful blending of culture and religion as well as to listen to one another. Let's now go straight to our first guest uh, for this segment, who is Sue Clayton. Sue is the chair of the Anglican Pacifist Fellowship and a committee member of the Week of Prayer for World Peace. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show, Sue. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. So uh, what, to your mind, is the significance of the World Religion Day? Well, I must be completely honest with you and say, until I was asked this question, I did not know about world religion. (laughs) Okay. So Um, we're making each other wiser today then. That is, definitely. But it prompted me to have a look and see that this has come from the Baha'i tradition. Right. And that it actually started a long time ago. But I don't think here in the UK at least, it has the prominence that really it should. Mm. Mm. Uh, And certainly uh, APF will be highlighting this next year on World Religion Day, amongst other things. Um, The Anglican Pacifist Fellowship was formed uh, in 1937, so it's a, a very old group in many ways Um, and we have members not just here in the UK but throughout the Anglican Communion and our main purpose is to uh, say that war as a means of solving disputes is completely immoral and we have stuck with that for now approaching 90 years. One of the things that um, I really liked about World uh, Religion Day is also a factor, uh, the main factor, if I'm honest, in the Week of Prayer for World Peace. The week was founded back in 1974, 
So this is the 50th anniversary year. And at the time, the first chairman, who is the late Dr. Edward Carpenter, former dean of Westminster Abbey, said, the peace, excuse me, the peace of the world must be prayed for by the faiths of the world. And that is still the basis of the week of prayer for world peace to this day. So the uh, World Religion Day is yet another opportunity to bring that message to people, and I hope it is pretty well supported. Uh, thank you for that. For, from from your experience, um, how do religious beliefs and you know practices contribute to promoting or to the promotion of peace and nonviolence? For many people of faith, any any faith, their the basis of their commitments to living a moral life to living a peaceful life, not just for themselves, but for their families, their communities, and for the world, is central. Certainly for Christians, it means that we are charged to love our God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. And you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you are looking at war and violence as a way of solving problems. Unfortunately, we hear all too often of how religions are used rather to promote discord. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that's very, very important is that we work together for peace. Now, there are many, many good examples we can look of uh, where nonviolence was central to an individual's uh, beliefs. Uh, Probably the best-known one is Mahatma Gandhi, also Dr. Martin Luther King, who had, as the, the promotion of their preaching nonviolence, their deep, deep rooted faith. And of course, you can look for more modern people as well, people like Jim Wallace in the United States, many of the, a lot of the work that is done by the Society of Friends, the Quakers, all of which have peace and nonviolence as core to their tradition. Mm-hmm. So- and um, I think it's important that we not shy away from that because I think a lot of people, uh, while they agree that peace is important, for Christians we are charged that blessed are the peacemakers, yeah. not the peacekeepers, but the peace makers. And so that is partly why APF continues to work uh, to promote through campaigning and so forth peace, but also to educate for peace. Mm -hmm. And um, 
the week of prayer for world peace back in 1974 was actually an APF initiative originally. Uh, And when I look back at what was happening in 1974, there was major problems in Cyprus and many other places in the world. And in some ways, I could almost become discouraged that 50 years on, if anything, the world is in a worse situation mm-hmm. for war and violence. And so one of the key things we must do collectively through all faith communities is to continue to pray and work for peace. Mm. Um, just following to that, um, how can organizations such as, your, such as the APF play a role in encouraging dialogue, dialogue between, you know, um, diverse religion groups for the main purpose of, you know, um, uh, uh, to find a, a cause for greater peace? Well, we at the moment, we have contact with a number of religious groups, religious communities. Um, And, of course, as I've mentioned earlier, we are not just here in the UK, but we're in countries around the communion and uh, in places like New Zealand. We have uh, uh, a branch there that is very active with other uh, faith communities in, in that country. Similarly, in Canada as well as here in the UK, and we work with groups like the the Peace Mala down in, in Swansea in Wales and their promotion of peace. But our main thing is through the Week of Prayer for World Peace, which brings us to work with many, many communities. And at this point, I would like to make an appeal that if any of your listeners are interested. We are looking for more members for the committee for the Week of Prayer for World Peace. All our meetings are held online, so it doesn't matter where you live. Uh, And they're held in the evening, so if you're at work, uh, hopefully you could still join us. But if anybody is interested, if they simply email WP wp21 at yahoo.com I'll repeat that wp wp21 at yahoo.com We'll be happy to get back to them to explain a little bit about the role but it would be very good to add your community to the other faith communities who work on the Week of Prayer for World Peace, especially in this, our 50th year, when we will be having a number of activities before the Week of Prayer for World Peace in October. Absolutely. Why not? Um, I I hope uh, and pray that uh, your endeavors continue to gain success. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Peace be with you, Sue. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was um, 
Sukleden, who is the chair of the Anglican Anglican Pacifist Fellowship and a committee member of the Week of Prayer for World Peace, talking to us uh, about um, about their endeavours. Um, let me now play a short clip from the fourth head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. May Allah have mercy on his soul. Um, and he gave this, um, um, uh, this clip is from a question and answer session uh, that dates back to 1996, but is very relevant today as well. And he answers, answers this question on interfaith dialogue. Let's listen in. question I would like to ask is, um, does the Ahmadiyya community favor interfaith dialogue and activity? And secondly, if so, what does it believe can be accomplished by such dialogue and activity? Thank you. In fact, it is the Ahmadiyya community which took a pioneer move in this direction long ago, close to the turn of the century. It was first invitation issued by Jamaat Ahmadiyya to all faiths for an interfaith dialogue. In fact, uh, it happened even before that in 1896. The first conference of interfaith which was held in Lahore was at the initiation of the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, and uh, the conditions laid down for this participation were very fair and a new chapter was in fact opened in this direction. Every speaker representing any faith was required to speak on behalf of his scriptures, should not attribute things from himself. And whatever he wants to say should be in praise of his faith, not in critical appreciation of others' faiths. He should say whatever he may please, but with an open mind and always with a reference to his own basic scriptures. And bring to light the good points, so that others may understand from the mouth of those who believe in something, or what value they have in their mind and what role it can play in the world peace and so on. This was taken up later on by the second head of the Ahmadiyya community, who also happened to be my late father. He started a new series of interfaith talks. We called it Jalsai Mazahib. And uh, in that, repeatedly, all over India, such conferences were held under the same conditions. And they became very popular because many a misunderstanding was removed and more than that, attitudes were rectified. Instead of the mad uh, debates of the previous era, where everybody went for the skin of the other, everybody projected himself as belonging to a faith which is honorable, which is good for mankind, and so on. So in rectification of attitudes, such efforts are known to be fruitful. But beyond that, whether it will really change the face of the earth 
and will be able to establish peace, I have my doubts. Because this type of leadership, religious leadership, which participates in such conferences, has no hold on the masses of those religions they represent. And whatever decent attitude they, they display in such conferences, as far as the common men belonging to the faith are concerned, they are most often controlled and influenced by the zealots or zealots of the faith. And they don't like such reconciliations because they thrive on hatred, not on love. So the more hatred there is felt in the hearts of followers of one faith against the faith of the others, more popular such leaders become. So how to emancipate, how to liberate the common people from the clutches of these vultures, I hope you won't mind my strong word vultures, but vultures it is which comes to my mind because there is no other better descriptive word. They thrive on carrion, human carrion. And uh, it's very unfortunate that they do it in the name of God, in the, na in the name of their holy founders and prophets, etc. Because uh, they present a very sorry picture of religion as such, and they themselves are responsible for bringing bad name to their religion and their leaders. So if interfaith leadership also has some dialogue with the leadership which is really in command, then of course, hopefully, some uh, better attitudes may result from that, reformed attitudes. The second thing is that uh, the peace is far more related to the political attitudes rather than the religious attitudes. More often than not, it is the it is religion which is exploited by politicians. And wherever religion has been found to play any negative role in the world affairs, it has never been able to do it without politics. First, they command sources of power at the political level, then they play havoc with the peace of the world. So, what to do about them? This requires more, much, much more than just some dialogues held at, uh, at the level of, that you're talking about, in some peaceful atmosphere like this hall, etc. Because these things do not make a dent upon the political thinking at all. So, it is at best a, an academic luxury. Yet it is enjoyable to talk good and listen good is very good. Thank you. So that was the fourth head of the Amdiya Muslim community, Mr. Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on his soul, talking about um, interfaith uh, dialogue and, uh, and, and what needs to be done. And a lot more needs to indeed be done to, uh, to promote and, and to shift political thinking. As he said, let me now go straight to our second guest for this segment, who is Wendy Momin. Um, Wendy is uh, an advocate for justice, 
focusing on a cluster of issues that promote social justice, the advancement of women, poverty eradication, health, criminal justice, interfaith harmony, housing, environment, and business ethics. She is the treasurer trustee of the National Alliance of Women's Organization. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, so, Wendy, um, Tell us about the. Uh, you are the. Um, you're also part of the National Governing Council of uh, the Baha'i in the um, in the UK. Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, tell us uh, how the Baha'i community initiated the World Religion Day. Yes. Well, you know, the Baha'i faith, right from its beginning in the 19th century, has always been an advocate for. Um, the fact of religion being an important factor in, in the world, that there's just the one God, and that there's the religion of God is always true. It's always been and it will always be. So the concept of, of the concept of World Religion Day really grew out of this idea that there's just the one God and that we are all children of God and that the religions derive from the same God and really there's just the one world religion, which you could call the religion of God. But the particular um, uh, 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 celebration of this actually started back in the United States in 1947. And that was just a talk that was being given by one of the Baha'is in Maine uh, in October 1947. And the the title of that talk was World Peace Through World Religion. And it was really the concept I've just been speaking about, about the nature of the oneness of humanity, the oneness of God, and the oneness of the religion of God. Uh, But it was kind of a novel idea, I think, at that time. And so from that early start in October 1947 in Maine, the next set of observations of this day were in 1949 in a number of Baha'i communities across the United States. But what happened was that the local newspapers took this up and actually called it World Religion Day. It wasn't something that the Baha'is themselves badged it like, but they called it this. And so eventually, there were so many organizations, um, Baha'i communities around the United States uh, commemorating this day. The national governing body of the Baha'is of the United States at that time uh, decided that they would call it World Religion Day and that they would hold it um, in January uh, the, the the third Sunday in January in the next year. And so it really began from these very humble beginnings uh, to be a worldwide phenomenon. Can you share some examples um, of successful interfaith initiatives or projects that have emerged from, you know, um, uh, from the observance of World Religion Day? Yes. Well, the thing is, of course, it's really outgrown its Baha'i roots because it's taken on by many, many organizations now uh, as a kind of movement towards recognizing that all the religions have this same spiritual root in the teachings of God uh, yeah. over, the, over humanity. So, for example, the things that have come out of it um, in many places, including in my own area, is oh, I live in Bedfordshire, um, is that you know, various councils of faith or interfaith groups have taken this up to be an opportunity for um, them to come together to reflect on their their commonalities, to reflect on the power of the Word of God in humanity, and to reflect on the purpose of religion, 
which is to uplift people, to bring them closer to God, and for them to work collaboratively with people around uh, in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and around the world. And so there's many of these organizations now. And I was just looking and realizing that local schools have taken this up and often have in the schools now, uh, which in this country used to be very Christian-based, now celebrate World Religion Day by giving uh, opportunities for children to think about these different religions that the schools now reflect, including Islam, uh, the Judaism, the Baha'i faith, Sikh religion, Jains, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, are there any plans uh, in the future for further uh, collaboration with other religious communities? Well, the Baha'is themselves, of course, do this. This is exactly what we do. Uh, we work collaboratively with many different religious communities. Of course, we're members of the Interfaith Network, which is a, a wide national organization that enables people to come together to uh, work together, to do activities together. And at the local level, for example, I'm on Bedford Council of Faiths. Uh, we meet together with many different religious communities and with local government to try to create harmony and understanding and appreciation among the different religious communities. And this is all done at the local level, and of course there are national level activities as well. How can individuals uh, or even communities continue to promote harmony and unity, like you mentioned, through interfaith dialogue beyond yeah. you know, World Religion Day? Yes. Well, not to just, I think the main thing is to, certainly to observe World Religion Day, but to remember that every day of our lives needs to be a conscious effort to work with other people, to collaborate with them, to understand, to try to make friends with people. I always say the main thing we can do is to open our own doors to other people coming in and learning about ourselves, and that we also, whoever we are, know our neighbors, understand them, appreciate them. In my own, my own family, for many, many years, we open our doors and we have every week uh, devotional meetings with people from different religions in which people bring their own prayers, but collectively we worship God together mm -hmm. um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a concept of fellowship. And we've learned to love each other, we've learned, and we've become very good friends. And we've been doing this for over 20 years right here in my own house. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that, Wendy. I hope you, you have a wonderful week ahead of you and peace be upon you. And peace be upon you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. So that was um, Wendy, Wendy, Wendy Momen, uh, who is uh, a part of the National Governing Council of the Baha'is in the UK, and she's an advocate for justice focusing on a number of issues uh, such as uh, promoting social justice, advancement for women, poverty er eradication, health and criminal justice, uh, to name a few. Right. So we are this morning talking about uh, World Religion Day. Um, and I guess the um, uh, the reason for that is the importance of the need for, for religion in this time, the importance of um, having faith. And uh, in the earlier segment, we were talking about how faith uh, is able to give determination and hope to Palestinians in these rather very, very trying time and uh, trying times and very testing times to them. Um, and in this segment, we're talking about um, really an extension of that, which is 
you know how how important religion really is for people how important what religion really offers um in 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 today's day and age to people um in in today's day and age to society and what religion can do not in terms uh, not only in terms of providing hope um uh, and determination but all and steadfastness but also in terms of um spirituality uh, and uh, and help in achieving both internal inner peace as well as um, uh, peace outside in the world. Um, and we've spoken to two guests so far. So we've spoken to Sue Clayton, who is the chair of the Anglican Pacifist Fellowship and a committee member of the Prayer of, of um, committee member of the Week of Prayer for World Peace. And we have also spoken to. Um, uh, to Wendy Momin, who is uh, part of the Baha'i movement in uh, the UK, um, uh, we we would like to uh, um, uh, to go to our next guest. But before, before we do that, very quickly, um, how important do you think uh, Imam Bhatti religion is in today's society? I think religion. Um, has a solution to everything in the aspect of in Islam um, Islam shares fundamental values and ethnics with other worldly uh, worldly religions such as Christianity, Judaism very similarities in these type of religions and what the similarities that they have is that all of them have solution to your day to day life, your family life your work life, you know where you know that you need to give time to certain aspects and where you need to give time to to understand that there is a supreme being above you and you need to give all of your attention to him and once you do give your attention to him through that you can continue to live your life peacefully etc mm. and you have no i would say external stress in the sense that that you know, I did something and I don't have control over that. Mm. And this, and something comes in your way. Oh, okay, well, why did that happen? Why? What certain aspects? What did I do for that to happen? When you leave everything to God Almighty, you don't. That doesn't affect you in any way, mm. right? Because mm. you know what God knows. Because you know what God knows what's best for you. He's the best planner of all. Right. So I think that as in any action you do, there's a solution. And the only way you do that is just you have to pray and let it be how it is. Let's circle back to this. And the question that I really want to ask you is, that, you know, how relevant religion is in today's day and age? Because a lot of people would say that religion is not uh, not important and how that can actually uh, help bring both uh, inner peace and external peace. Let's now, now go uh, straight to our last guest uh, uh, for the show today, who is Shaheen Behradnya who is Religious Affairs Coordinator for the World Zoroastrian Organization. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. So, uh, World Religion Day aims to promote understanding and peace uh, between all religions. What are, what are some of the ways that the World Zoroastrian Organization is helping to achieve that? Well, um what one has to try and uh, understand is where all this uh, disaffection and conflict is coming from. Mm. Now, the World Zoroastrian Organization is not going out there um, militating or agitating or demonstrating. It's just um, trying to uh, 
do things peacefully by passing information around about the basic information, uh, the basic uh, philosophy of Zoroastrianism. If you say, what are we trying to do? Well, we're trying to be part of an, uh, a community of faith in Britain. I mean, yesterday I was on a uh, peaceful, silent walk from Trafalgar Square with uh, about 10 other faiths in Britain uh, being right. represented. And we were doing, showing solidarity awesome. for peace, hmm. um, if we can, in England. But I don't believe, or in Britain, but I don't believe that down the road to Downing Street and Parliament Square and back is going to achieve hmm. world peace. But it's a little effort that we can do in this society. But the basic thing is that we have been brought up in our philosophy to always tell the truth and to always be kind and do acts of charity and kindness because we believe that by acting well and listening to the inner voice that we all have, we all have a conscience. And the Zoroastrianism's main thrust, if you like, moral thrust, and it's a very moral philosophy. It's not a religion that requires lots of blind ritual and faith without understanding why you're doing this. It believes in using the voice of your conscience, your intelligence. And listening to that means that you end up becoming a human being whose life is dedicated to doing kindness, to doing good, to helping to increase the positivity in the world, and actively developing your ability to think and judge what is right and what is wrong. So if you are dedicating your life to that it comes out you know what justice is you know what fairness is you know that what you do to somebody else can be done back to you and it's not very nice then you won't want to do that if you want to um if i take an extreme example if you want to cut someone's head off if you want to beat a woman or if you want to uh, hit a child you know that if you at the receiving end you wouldn't like that if you were a woman you wouldn't want to be beaten up if you were a, um, a human being whose head has been cut off you wouldn't want that to happen to you so it's really understanding from compassion from feeling what it's like for other people that acts of kindness can come and you decide what is right and what is wrong by listening to that voice inside your head and we really do talk about developing children to understand that there is always a constant struggle. You can either choose the easy way of doing something naughty and something wrong, not paying your bus fare or not um, or, or pinching something from the village shop or the corner shop, taking something without paying. It's all too easy to do, but you know that's wrong and you have to work out in your own head about what is right and what is wrong. So when you say, what are we doing towards world peace? Well, individually, individually, every act of Kindness and goodness is an example to somebody else who receives it. And we believe that happiness comes from that. Happiness comes from being, um, doing more good than harm in the world. And it is your responsibility to make that decision. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if you understand or know much about Zoroastrianism. It's a very, very ancient religion. It's uh, yes. supposed to be the oldest religion in the world, and maybe it is. I mean, we're not going to start arguing about dates, but there is scholarly, <laughs> scholarly, we, scholarly. We're not uh, arguing about anything. It is the World Religion Day we are celebrating. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and exactly. So, but that's just a fact. Yeah. Within that, the, the, the philosophy of, the, of, of what we follow is about telling the truth, always following the right path, and developing an inner conscience so that you can become a better human being on this earth because actually we don't know about what happens next nobody knows so we don't spend a lot of time agonizing about the next life we spend all our time trying to concentrate on being good in this life so this is where it counts this is where you feel it this is where you're living now and so it's the best thing is to make sure that what you are doing 
is a positive contribution to the future of the generations to come, the future of the planet. We are extremely environmentally conscious. Mm. And of course, there is a very strong possibility that war and conflict will be over water, for example. Yeah. There is strong conflict um, already over water in some areas because mm. between countries and borders because they are um, not getting enough water for their crops and yes. there are lakes that are declining in size. Mm. So everything you can do as a human being to be conscious, to be listening, to be aware, to be educated, to be um, conscious of the world around you, not just your little cocoon for you, mm. but the whole world is the is the business of every human being. What would and you that say, is what we're trying to develop. Sure. What would you say, Shayan, to, uh, to people um, who believe that the root of all evil in the world is religion? Well, I would say that they've got a, a good point. I wouldn't say the root of all evil in the world is religion. But certainly what happens between people is, is human nature, unfortunately, that wants to say, I'm better than you. It's kind of, you know, you see it in all sorts of things. You see it in children playing together. One wants to be the winner. You know, there's always this strong, strong sense of, um, you know, survival of the fittest. I'm better than you. I'm stronger than you. And religion allows that conflict that is perhaps endemic in human beings, very basic, their basic instinct to, for rivalry, for conflict, for competition, may be a natural human survival instinct. That can be exacerbated when religion starts saying, I'm better than you, or I'm, my difference is a difference that was ordained by the prophet, or ordained by the leader, or ordained by the initiator. And look at how many sects exist in Christianity. Look how many sects exist in Islam. Um, you know, there is, there is, there is uh, even in Buddhism, there, there are as many sects, I mean, as, as, and those sects, each of them claiming a superior knowledge of mm. what the founder of the religion wanted mm. is the source of conflict because everyone says, I know better than you. So you could say that religion has a look at Northern Ireland. You, know, you can say that religion has certainly look at look at what's happening in India. I mean, it's everywhere where there has been religion, conflict has ensued unless that religion has not insisted on imposing its own Rules would you say that that's a wrong interpretation of the religion, or would you say that 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 that's religion itself? Well, some some religions, I'm afraid, some religions are dedicated to expanding their own existence, their presence, their their adherence. They they, they believe that evangelism and uh, missionary work to spread the religion is absolutely critical to the message of the religion. But you can but spread it, peacefully. Pardon me? You can spread peacefully. Well, you could, but um, the reality is that what has happened is that people tend to force it on people, others. Um, mm. If there is a slightly meeker, milder, more uh, tolerant uh, group sure. of people right. and a less tolerant group of people come upon them, well, this is ripe you know, for conversion. They will um, persuade them, bully them, cajole them, bribe them, and this is what happens. And very, very often, I'm afraid it is by force. Right. Excellent. Um, Shine, thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, really right. a pleasure. Well, I, to... hope, I hope that that was a little helpful. To no, that was, that was indeed. And all the best with all the great efforts you're making. I think that walk is an excellent idea. So um, uh, so please keep uh, making those initiatives. And I think right. yeah, well, every little helps. And we we do live in, in very uh, you know testing times when actually uh, schisms are being developed as opposed to, um, to cohesion. Dialogue. Dialogue is the most important thing. Talking, not 100%. fighting, 100%. is the way forward. Okay. Thank, thank you, Shaheen. You. Pleasure to have you. Bye. Peace be with you. Bye-bye. So that was Shaheen Behradnya, who is the re- religious coordinator 
uh, religious affairs coordinator for the World Zoroastrian Organization. Um, right, we are coming towards the end of the uh, program. Uh, Imam Bhatti, if I can ask you two questions, I think there was one very important point that was raised by Shaheen, which is, uh, which is that of um, tolerance. Um, so my my first question to you would be, um, what is Islamic teaching around uh, around to- tolerance in general? And my second question would be about how important is it um, to to have a relationship with your Creator? To answer your first question, I think the best would be to give a example of the founder of Islam, so the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, so, peace so. and blessings of Allah be upon him, where. His life served us a model of tolerance and respect for different religions. Mm. Right at the time of you know when the constitution of Medina was established by the, by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. You know he had every right to enforce a rule of fear mm. upon the people who were living there, because as you are aware that not everyone not everyone who was living there was a Muslim. No, there were Jews, there were, there were Jews, there Christians, were the there, yeah. there's so many yeah. other people, right? right? There were even atheists there. Yes. So he gave respect to every religion. Mm. He gave respect to every place of worship mm. because he knew, right, that Islam is a universal religion for everyone, mm. right? And for people to be attracted to Islam, you must give respect to other religions that were there prior to it, Right. It leads all towards that one final message. You, Islam is a religion that unifies everyone. Right. So I think that would be the best way to answer your question about tolerance. Right. And right. Islam and Quran does say no compulsion. No, in no religion, compulsion. Like Rafidin. Yeah, yeah. like Rafidin. Second question was um, the importance of having a relationship with your Creator. You know, this question tends to arise in the younger generation more oh. nowadays. Um, I believe I was speaking to a colleague the other day and. Uh, you know, he's asking me, what's the point of me praying? Hmm. What's the point of me even reading my five daily prayers or whatever? I asked him, you know when you do a bad action, hmm. how do you feel? Do you feel guilty yeah. in the essence? I said, if, if just just take God out of the aspect, just take him away. Right. Just, just imagine God doesn't exist. Hmm. You give charity, why do you feel good? Hmm. What's the, what, what reward are you going to get if there's no God? Hmm. Right? Because you know you doing this certain aspect will give you a certain amount of reward. Hmm. whether the fact you believe if there's one God, 12 gods or whatever it is right. and if you do a certain bad action hmm. you know there's going to be a punishment for it hmm. automatically you can even impose this theory upon an atheist for him to help his neighbour why does he need to help his neighbour if he doesn't believe in a God or he doesn't believe in some sort of punishment or reward because hmm. there, is, there is an ultimate judge so for us to establish a relationship with Allah or God hmm. Almighty is for him to see us, as as is mentioned in the Holy Quran, the reason for our existence is to worship. Right. Right? So for us to establish a good relationship with God is that to show that whatever we're doing is for him mm. and for him only. Right. And whether he rewards us, punish us, it's it's not for us to decide. Right. Thank you very much for that, Imam Bhatti. That brings us to the end of today's program. I must thank our producers, uh, Aksarana and Shanza Mubarak, researchers Salia Siddiqui, Ruksana Nasir and Hassan Walid. Uh, excellent help from the tech room from Mr. Tahir and from Mr. Akib. Um, and to you, all our listeners, we'll be back next Monday. Until then, assalamu alaikum. <laughs>